Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today for Pride Month, a closer look at the evolution of the movement in the local community and the growth of LGBTQ plus spectrum of Findlay. Also this morning, Findlay Mayor Christina Mern discusses the just-concluded U.S. Conference of Mayors annual meeting, which was held right down the road in Columbus. And in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, ahead of Father's Day later this month, postpartum depression can keep new mothers from bonding with their children. What should we call it when fathers face the same struggle? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, June 8, 2023. Did you happen to see the pictures uh, from New York City? Saw time-lapse photography in New York City yesterday as the day uh, went on uh, over the course of the past couple of days. As a matter of fact, uh, it's just amazing. Uh, yesterday, New York City for a time was rated the most polluted city in the world because of the smoke from the wildfires in Canada. Uh, According to the IQ Air World Air Quality Index, New York City's air quality was worse than any other city at 10 p.m. Tuesday night. and was still considered very unhealthy early Wednesday. Uh, City officials urging uh, folks to remain indoors wherever possible and um, maybe put on those masks again. Where did I put those masks? Uh, So it was uh, just uh, crazy. And uh, they're expecting several more days of smoke. It was also bad in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., as far west as Pittsburgh. And uh, so it's going to be another uh, day like that, as we mentioned. I'm going to uh, get more info on that coming up here in uh, just a bit. But that is uh, one of the big stories. What the air quality index uh, goes from zero to 500, and for a time... Uh, New York was like 480 out of 500. And I think uh, Pittsburgh was right up there, too, uh, in the uh, 400 range. Maybe Philadelphia. I don't know. It's like way up there. And for comparison, anything over 150 is considered unhealthy. (laughs) And and more than double that. Uh, So it is uh, really nasty. We may not get the worst of it uh, for a couple of days yet, but it's expected to continue for basically as long as the weather pattern continues the way it is and the wildfires uh, continue to uh, blaze out of control. So a lot of things going on there uh, that are playing into this, but uh, we'll break it all down for you in just a bit. What else going on among the first things you need to know this morning? The most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. This was uh, kind of interesting, a story that I saw on the uh, Newswire the other day. Um, involving the obesity crisis, which is you know has been an ongoing thing for years and years and years in this country, um, almost to the point where it's not even newsworthy anymore. This is such a an ongoing problem. But uh, what I thought was interesting in this story is that uh, some doctors are now changing their advice. Uh, Because this is so pervasive and is getting to be such a big crisis, uh, some doctors are are changing their advice. It used to be the prevailing thought in the medical community was we could not medicate our way out of of the obesity crisis. You need to change lifestyles, get people more active, get people eating healthier. There is no miracle drug or miracle surgery that we could do. That was not the first club out of the bag. Well, that apparently is changing. Um, more and more people banking on uh, medications uh, to counter their obesity issues. And uh, while it says here, this is the uh, story, while pills are described are, are prescribed in severe cases currently, some British government officials want to medicate our way out of the problem instead of proposing the more holistic lifestyle-based solutions. Estimates indicate over 12 million adults in England alone are obese, um, and the crisis is costing the country nearly $7 billion a year to manage. And while the debate over whether to medicate or educate to solve the problem continues, so do the waistlines 
of uh, many adults uh, worldwide. And we got these uh, new medications like Ozempic and these uh, other uh, medications that are designed to treat diabetes but also have weight loss uh, effects. More and more people are taking these medications specifically for their weight loss properties. And apparently the medical community is now starting to shift in their mindset toward uh, uh, taking a uh, more urgent uh, more urgent steps to uh, to attack this. I just thought it was kind of interesting, that uh, change of mindset uh, from we don't want to medicate our way out of there to maybe we have to. just thought that could be a watershed moment. Uh, let's see here. Speaking of medications, I saw this on the uh, Newswire. One medical safety expert is getting the word out about the best ways to encourage children to take their medicine. Have you ever had to try and give kids medicine and you know that's uh, a battle? Well, this, uh, I, I don't know if it's a doctor or a pharmacist or just as a medical safety expert. That's what it says on the, uh, the story of the uh, Newswire. Uh, but uh, this uh, expert advises telling your kids that medicine is candy or a treat. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I read that wrong. Uh, this expert advises that telling your kids medicine is candy or a treat does not help them in the long run. He said, because kids are, of course, curious by nature and see the world differently. He stressed the importance of telling kids the truth about what they're uh, taking and why they are doing so. Instead of telling them that medicine is candy or treats, he encouraged parents to teach your child from a young age about the safe use of medicines and make sure you praise and reward them when they follow the rules, take their medicine to reinforce good behavior. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, let's see. A couple of other uh, interesting items among the first things that you need to know. Speaking of keeping healthy, this is an interesting story. Apparently, post-pandemic, we are going back to our unhealthy habits. How often do you wash your hands? Uh, this is, man, this is actually bad news. Um, you remember during the pandemic, everybody was washing our hands. We were washing our hands religiously, probably more than we needed to, just to be on the safe side, right? And that was kind of the uh, one good thing to come out of the pandemic is we finally took you know personal hygiene seriously. Um, but a new poll finds nearly half of Americans no longer do a good job of thoroughly scrubbing away germs on our hands. In fact, some don't even use soap. According to the Healthy Handwashing Survey from the Bradley Corporation, 93% of adults believe that handwashing is essential to maintaining their overall health. And that sentiment crosses all Lines, gender, age, geography, all of that. Everybody agrees, This is, nearly everybody agrees, this is essential to maintaining our overall health. And it is, by the way. The need for feeling clean has risen in recent years. In 2009, only 45% of people felt the need to wash their hands diligently and regularly. Uh, that rate has steadily climbed since and hit its peak in 2020, pandemic, 90%. Of people washed up very carefully uh, during the initial outbreak of COVID. But we have since, in some cases, reverted back to our more relaxed habits. Uh, now it is at 85% of uh, individuals who regularly wash their hands when they should. And some don't even use soap. Can we get back to that, please? I don't want to go back to much of anything else in the pandemic, but can we go back to that? I think that would be a good thing. So just to uh, throw throw that out there, if you have uh, become maybe lax uh, in your habits, it's time to you know, redouble your efforts. And uh, this story here, um, among the first things you need to know this morning, uh, definitely... One of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day is the late Paul Harvey used to be fond of saying, this day's news of most lasting significance could be this. A team of researchers in Southern California has made a major milestone this week. For the first time ever, they have transmitted power from point A to point B wirelessly through space. Now, let me repeat that. They have 
transmitted power wirelessly through space to a precise location on Earth from point A to point B, transferring power wirelessly. The solar power experiment is still in its early stages, but Caltech scientists hope someday to be able to beam power to specific places, like remote regions of the Earth, places that are devastated by natural disasters or war, where uh, power has been cut off, the power lines have been destroyed or cut or whatever. You could move power into those areas wirelessly. And think about that. I mean, if this would become commonplace, you would never have to really worry about power outages, right? Because no matter what happened, you wouldn't have to worry about power lines going down or anything like that. Um, officials tout Caltech's SSPP project as an example of modern private sector aerospace research at work. The president of Caltech, Thomas F. Rosenbaum, said the milestone foreshadows a remarkable payoff for humanity, a world powered by uninterruptible renewable energy. I don't care. I mean, you know, renewable energy, great, but just being able to move energy wirelessly from point A to point B. And think about, ultimately, the cost savings for power companies. I don't know how much it would cost or the equipment that would be necessary to move power wirelessly from one place to another. Uh, I would imagine that's not cheap, but in the long run, it's got to be cheaper than having to string wires everywhere. Um, so I did just, that to me is, an, uh, is amazing science. That to me is amazing science. So who knows? Maybe this becomes the norm someday in the future. And you can say, I heard about it when. I remember hearing about that on June 8th of 2023. There you go. This day's news of most lasting significance. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Widespread haze and some areas of smoke expected today. High in the mid-70s. Partly cloudy tonight. Low around 50 the National Lime and Stone Company in Findlay is celebrating its 120th anniversary this year. CEO Paul Palmer says they've grown steadily over the years and are now one of the biggest independent producers in the country. And through the efforts of wonderful people who've, who've gotten us where we are now, 120 years later, we plan to keep growing uh, and, and remaining strong as an independent producer. He says they started in Cary, and their Cary Quarry is still in operation 120 years later and is the largest quarry in the state. Get more of our conversation with Paul about their anniversary with this story on our website. Two Cleveland Browns players were robbed at gunpoint, and another had his vehicle stolen over the weekend in Cleveland. The two players robbed at gunpoint were Greg Newsom II and Perion Winfrey. They reported parking a truck in the lot next to Filter Bar and Lounge on Superior Avenue early Monday morning. Six men in masks allegedly jumped out of a separate car and attacked them, taking jewelry and other things from them. And also on Sunday, Cleveland Browns running back and wide receiver Demetric Felton reported having his 2023 Dodge Durango Hellcat stolen out of the maze parking garage. I'm Stephanie Haney. The Cleveland Clinic has some advice to help you protect yourself from ticks that spread Lyme disease. Finding it can be difficult. It's about the size of a sesame seed. Ticks can't get through clothing. But if you do find a deer tick on you crawling, it isn't a big deal. If it attached and is feeding on you, how long it's been there matters. More than 36 hours? Call your health care provider for treatment. Another warning sign? The rash. When they do bite and they transmit illness, they will cause a red rash. It looks like a bullseye. I'm Monica Robbins. The Finley Rotary Club has awarded its 2023 Richard E. Dick Doherty Scholarship. The recipient this year is Nathan Haynes, a recent graduate of Finley High School. He plans to attend Baldwin-Wallace in the fall to pursue a degree in music education. The Richard E. Dick Doherty Scholarship is designated for students studying art, graphic design, music, dance, theater, or broadcasting. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. 
so right out of the gate this morning, we want to talk uh, more about this uh, air quality issue. Yesterday, the Ohio EPA issued a statewide air quality advisory as smoke from those Canadian wildfires continues to adversely impact our air quality. And those levels are expected to remain elevated through the day today. In all, some 150 million Americans across some 19 states uh, are impacted uh, to one degree or another by this. And we are joined by WTOL 11 meteorologist Diane Phillips in the weather office this morning. Uh, Diane, how bad will th- is this expected to be yet today? Because my understanding is this could continue to affect us for the next couple, three days. Yes. So we are going to continue to keep an eye on everything because this is not just something that's been isolated to kind of Monday, Tuesday when we were experiencing it. We've had it all week long. And today, just to kind of put it in perspective, will be very similar to what we had on Tuesday. It was very hazy. It almost looked like we had fog um, even during the day and the afternoon. But even tomorrow, we're still going to be looking at a day that's going to be similar to what we're experiencing now. If not, maybe even a touch worse. It really depends on your wind direction and also those fires. That's kind of that one variable that we're always having to monitor because right. it can change in such short notice. Yeah, and, and I suppose we should step back and, and talk about the kind of the confluence of factors that are coming together in just the right, right way to make this such an issue. Obviously, the wildfires are the uh, the main trigger, but then it has to do with the way the jet stream uh, is has formed o- over the past week or so and how long that stays in place. And there are a number of uh, different things that are playing into this, right? Right. There's a lot of elements that go into it. And I know a lot of folks may be saying, okay, Quebec, it's kind of off towards our north and east. Right. How is this coming back at us? Yeah, not, not, where, you ha- would normally, not where you would normally expect the prevailing winds to come from in the first place. Exactly. And we've been having a pretty strong east northeasterly wind here through the season that kind of seems to be the the dominant direction here at least for the last couple of months but it really tends to we have a low pressure system that's off towards the northeast so we're finding that towards new york maine off into that corner of the country and those rotate counterclockwise so it's what it's able to do is it's able to go and grab those winds that we or the smoke that we have in quebec and as it's rotating counterclockwise, it's able to bring that in and send that in our in our direction towards the Great Lakes. So that's one variable that we have going. The other thing is, like you mentioned, the jet stream. So our atmosphere, it's kind of been a little blocked up. That's also why we haven't seen a lot of rain is that we're kind of stuck in this pattern to where it's a drier pattern. But that also means that things aren't moving through the atmosphere. So once we have the system off in the east that's there, it's not really able to push itself out and go out into the Atlantic and then have our next system move in. So we've kind of been locked into place. And then with the placement of that low pressure system in the east, things are just lining up to where we are seeing a lot of this smoke. And typically, even earlier in the season, we saw wildfires that were in the western portion of Canada and still brought that smoke into us in early May. Mm. So we're here, one, it's a little bit closer, but two, those fires, obviously the containment number or percentage is not very high at all. So that's another variable that we have to tend to is also the status of that fire, how crews are able to handle it. So there's a lot, and this is a very fluid situation. Now, uh, is there anything that is happening atmospherically that uh, brings this smoke down to a lower level versus uh, keeping it higher in the atmosphere? I mean, uh, you mentioned the, the wildfires in Western Canada, we did see some smoke, but but primarily that was higher up in the atmosphere, if I remember uh, correctly. So what brings it to the point where it's sort of at our level, where it is impacting our air quality more directly? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because it's a process that we can simply call as mixing. So you have obviously your atmosphere that stretches a great distance above us, but you not only have that movement going from west to east, 
but you also have that movement in the vertical. And we call that process, like I said, mixing. So what we're seeing is that we have that mixing process taking place, allowing that air to move and bringing that in from above and sinking it a little bit closer to where we are and to the surface. So without going into all the deep science of how mixing works, it's just knowing that that air and the particles that are in the air are moving more in the vertical rather than just from east to west. Now, as you mentioned, obviously the other big weather story over the past month, uh, nearly a month now, uh, is how dry it has been. Are those two things kind of playing off each other? I mean, is the the lack of rain that we have seen here, is that a factor at all? Or are these two separate things just happen to be happening at the same time? They're still kind of separate ideas as far as where they developed, but now they are kind of playing together now that they're both existing. Um, Obviously, the dry weather was kind of built in with our atmosphere that is blocked. Um, You know, it's not moving as fast, and that's why we aren't seeing that rainfall. Another thing to consider is that winter was fairly mild, though Canada saw that snowfall. They didn't see as much. They also, like us, didn't have a normal winter. So that also is going to play a role in their conditions as far as it being dry or even the snowpack that they're used to having. So there's a lot of elements in that setup that really change things. But another thing is, is now that we have these wildfires, though the smoke particles can help to create raindrops when you go through that whole process, Hmm. the issue is, is that it sucks up the moisture. So though it can help, it also can't really get the process started either. Hmm. So this might exacerbate the dry weather that we are actually seeing. Uh, Because while we're on the subject, um, it it does look, I guess, uh, in the extended forecast, like maybe the latter part of the weekend and maybe early next week, we might see some rain. Is that going to be enough to get us back on track or where, where we should be? It's still a little bit early on to talk and and to look at totals of what we're looking at. Um, What we had last kind of looked at, because the the timing of this storm has been, one, we need it, but two, it's been fluctuating to where we were kind of seeing that to be more on Sunday to where our latest data, now that we're able to get a good sample on the storm, is looking the later half of Sunday and then into Monday. But, of course, the moisture content and evaporation process, we're going to have to see how much water is left and able to make it to the ground for us to receive that, of course. But right now, we're kind of being a little bit on the conservative side to where, though maybe in a thunderstorm we could get some higher amounts, it's still not going to be enough to catch us up. We are well below But we'll take any rain, and also we will take any amount and when we can get it, even if it's on a weekend. Yeah, Uh, it really uh, sounds uh, interesting. All of this is kind of playing off of uh, each other with the the smoke, with the uh, air quality, with the dry weather, and and so on and so forth. Now, with respect to the uh, air quality and the the smoke um, and the haze and, and all of that, we have seen... The pictures, I'm sure many people have seen the pictures out of places like New York City and especially New York. And I think Pittsburgh was really bad uh, yesterday, mm-hmm. Philadelphia, D.C., uh, where it was the worst in New York City. We, we mentioned earlier the worst air quality in the world. We're not expecting anything on that level here, right? Well, also, that's based off of population, when they go and say it's the worst in the world, yeah. it's not only the air quality that they are measuring, but also the population. So obviously the population of New York is much higher. Um, looking at our weather data and what we're anticipating as far as that smoke movement, we are looking at a decent plume here this morning of some smoke. Okay. And then also this evening and then tomorrow for it to still be fairly heavy. Um, will it be some of the heaviest? No, but it's still going to be noticeable to where our air quality, I anticipate for that to be very similar to where we have been the last couple of days. But obviously that can change. Yesterday we were kind of in that yellow color on that air quality Wait. index yeah. to where it's on sensitive groups, but then in the afternoon that plume moved out and we were able to drop into the yellow. 
And so it can change very quickly as yeah, far as our air quality. And I know initially uh, it was maybe expected that it wouldn't be much of a factor yesterday, and it turned out to be more than what was originally anticipated. So obviously this can change uh, very quickly. So we will continue to watch it again. Diane Phillips, WTOL 11 meteorologist, joining us from the weather office with the very latest information on what's happening and why. And Diane, we appreciate uh, all of the info this morning. Thanks very much. You're welcome. And now we get to our cover story this morning. June, of course, is Pride Month. Over the weekend, LGBTQ plus spectrum of Finley held their annual Finley Pride event. And this morning, I want to take a, a closer look at the, well, the evolution of the movement, if you will, in the local community and the growth of uh, the spectrum organization. And board president Jasmine Bradley is with us on the line this morning. Jess, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. First of all, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Good morning, Chris. Uh, you, happy to be here today. You, you were, you've been there since kind of the, the very beginning, uh, the, the first uh, Finley Pride uh, celebrations and so on. When you look around, take a look at what this past weekend uh, was, was like and the, the whole celebration. Uh, what do you think with it, when you think about how this has grown uh, throughout the uh, past several years in the community? What goes through your mind? Yeah, um, well, I'll start by saying I haven't been here from the very beginning. Um, there were Pride celebrations happening in Finley since uh, 2003. Um, and really, I only got involved in about 2017. And then what some people say is the beginning of Finley Pride is 2019, when we had our first big Finley Pride. Mm-hmm. Um I think that speaks a lot to kind of the evolution in the sense of it was prior to the bigger Pride events, it was a very, um, it was a tight-knit group of folks that were running the yeah. event. Yeah. And there were, there were many reasons for that. You know, really, we, there were teachers on the board and things like that, and only in 2020 was legislation passed that protected... Um, teachers from being fired if they identified as being uh, LGBT. So there was a lot of uh, kind of navigating mm-hmm. that that happened in the early days of Spectrum of Finley. And then, you know, we were just so happy in 2019 when we had garnered enough kind of support from leadership in the community to, because it's not just us standing up and saying, hey, we're going to do this event. It's all the people behind right. us that are going to stand up and say, yeah, we support this event mm-hmm. um, and are willing to deal with uh, the calls and the messages and um, all of the pushback that happened, especially in that first year where we really went big. Um, and I think even then, that was 2019, we maybe had about 1,500 people mm-hmm. attend Pride. Uh, this year, we're, you know, we, we're estimating probably about 4,000 people across the weekend. So yeah. um, it's grown significantly. And uh, the thing that really touches my heart is when we're in the Pride in the Park, specifically that event, it's very family-orientated and... Just to see all the young people coming together, all the families coming together, um, all the allies in that space as well. We're not talking, you know, people right. who are straight allies. Uh, you know, the park is just full of a lot of love and acceptance and inclusion, and I think that that is a special, a special moment that I will forever be grateful that I was even a little bit part of. So. Yeah, you you referenced the. Uh the allies that have come on board, the other entities, businesses and such throughout the uh, community that also have a hand in making an event like that happen. And again, it's been interesting to see the growth of that sort of acceptance in the community. And and obviously this is a community, as you know, as everyone knows, uh, that has uh, traditionally been very traditional uh in terms of uh, issues such as these so to see that growth of the acceptance in the community uh again it, that is a significance that can't be understated really 
Correct, correct. I don't think, you know, no one person, no one organization can actually do what we've kind of set out here. <laughs> this is a, this is a true, you know, it's community in action. It's a true community effort. Um, and I think while Finley and Hancock County is, um, I agree, you know, it's like it is steeped in traditional values. Yeah, traditional, conservative, you know, however you want to uh, describe it, that's, I yeah. mean, that's the reality. That is the reality, but, but also within there is a lot of love and a lot of community spirit and a lot of folks that are not willing to stand by when people are pushed out or othered or not accepted. And so, you know, the, it... It runs both ways in the sense of people do want to create, you know, it takes a village to, you know, raise a child. People want that sort of atmosphere. And I think the understanding that you can't, you can't sort of self-select for that. You have to, you know, inclusion in, in the, at the end of the day makes our community stronger mm-hmm. and it is for the better of everyone. So, um, you know, uh, within that, you know, I think we get a lot of support from people that understand, you know, I, I love my neighbor. I am here to help and support the people that I live around. And that doesn't come with a caveat of I'll support you, but not you. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, all of that being said, uh, this is all happening under the backdrop of, of what we see uh, now as uh, sort of the anti-LGBTQ plus uh, movement, I guess, for lack of a better uh, better term, um, becoming more vocal and more, um, uh, I guess, uh, direct in, in their opposition. We see this uh, nationally. So still uh, challenges uh, that, that remain. And how do you deal with that sort of, uh, with that sort of pushback that still exists? Yeah, I I feel like we've been dealing with it for a long time. I feel like um, it is scary that, you know, some of these, the, the legislation that is coming up uh, at the state level, you know, federal level, um, we, you know, we don't do, <clears throat> we're not a kind of a political advocacy group or anything like that, so mm-hmm. we really deal with, you know, what does lived equality look like on the community level? Yeah. And I think that's why right now things like pride celebrations are just so much more important because if I'm a young person and I turn on the news right now and I see that, you know, leaders in our state, in our country are wanting to essentially erase who I am as a person, um, I'm not really going to feel very good about where do I belong in, uh, in, in the society, in the system. And so it's even more important we stand up as adults and we say, you belong right here, uh, you are loved, and you deserve to survive and thrive. And so that's kind of, you know, how I see the importance of the work we're doing and the celebration of Finley Pride. You know, we mentioned uh, the celebration that was happened this uh, this past weekend, the growth of that, and really uh, the, the Spectrum organization, as we mentioned, has also seen uh, some tremendous growth in, in recent years. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned, you're a community-level, community, community advocacy uh, organization, but the ways in which you uh, do that, not just with the events, but with uh, some of the uh, programming uh, programs that you offer and so on, uh, have expanded exponentially. Yeah, I think definitely in the last few years, we've seen an uptick in kind of the groups we run and uh, people interacting with that. You know, last year we reported uh, 200 unique individuals came through our uh, groups and so you know it's yeah it's important to highlight we're providing that support year round it's not just in June mm-hmm. um, and we do go out and do education um, at local organizations businesses um, and yeah I think 
there's there's lots to do. I think the the struggle that we find is the balance of there's so much to do. There's so many conversations to have, and mm-hmm. making sure that we balance that with the resources we have. So, um, you know, again, we're grateful for Finley Pride and all the people attending because all the money raised through that event comes back to the organization and helps us sustain kind of the year-round programming as well. Again, uh, talking about uh, Pride Month and the growth uh, and, and evolution of that within the community of Finley and the uh, growth of LGBTQ plus spectrum of Finley. We do have a link up on our webpage, by the way, for more information about all of the things that you do and the and the programming events and, and all of that at the Spectrum organization. And Board President Jasmine Bradley with us this morning for Pride Month. Jess, thanks very much for taking the time, kind of sharing your perspective. We appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Hope you have a good day. So this past weekend, the 91st meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors was held right down the road in Columbus. And among the more than 185 community leaders in attendance is Finley Mayor Christina Mern, who joins us in the studio this morning. Mayor Mern, thanks very much for dropping by. Good morning. Great to see you. We were just talking before we went on the air. It's kind of nice to only have to... Short drive to Columbus as opposed to hopping a train for or hopping a plane for, uh, you know, one of these. Uh, yes, things. it was so nice. You know, everybody was like, <laughs> now, how far are you from here? I'm like an hour and a half drive. It's great. It's very easy. Is that uh, I mean, it, it's going to be kind of cool too to have uh, all of these uh, community leaders uh, in the Buckeye State. I mean, it's no oh, obviously definitely. it's not Findlay, but it is. Yeah. It is nice to to bring the U.S. Conference of Mayors into Ohio to see what it is we're doing here. Yeah. It was really nice. I think all of the Ohio mayors kind of felt like we were co-hosting and Mm -hmm. uh, Mayor Ginther and his experience Columbus, they did an awesome job of um, there's always kind of evening events showing off kind of the community and, you know, having everybody together receptions and whatnot. But it was overall a great conference and, you know, everybody, it is, it is surprising how many people still just are not familiar with the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I know we talk a lot about trying to advertise the Midwest and Ohio and Finley and get our name out there. And it is, you know, folks just don't know. They think of just, you know, just agriculture. And that is obviously a large part of who we are, but Mm -hmm. we also have wonderful communities and every state is so different. Uh, Finley in like in a couple of different states, we would be their second most populous city. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, I feel like a small city mayor, which I am, but also, um, in other states, you know, we we'd yeah. be a top dog. Yeah, depending on you know, it's yeah. all perspective. It it's is all for perspective. Sure. Um, and and it's interesting you bring that up because this is obviously first and foremost uh, a gathering of city leaders from communities all over the uh, country. But there's more to it than just the mayors. Right? Yeah, correct. So the U.S. Conference of Mayors is a bipartisan organization, though, because there are more liberal mayors in the United sure. States, um, you know, that does tend to lean a little more liberal, much to my chagrin. Um, but there are uh, about a thousand communities that qualify to be in the U.S. Conference of Mayors, that's mm-hmm. cities over 30,000 or more. And just like any other, you know, association, um, the U.S. Conference of Mayors brings together mayors to have dialogue about best practices, um, advocacy, different things like that. But we also have a large business council of organizations that come in and, you know, talk about what they're seeing in their markets, what they see in their industries, things that communities can be doing. Um, so they have large, you know, uh, retail, you know, establishments and kind of that business aspect. We have service providers, waste management, um, you know, different engineering firms, all those different things. Um, but then we also have a lot of governmental entities, especially from the federal government, that come in and it gives us time, kind of face time, to talk about different issues. So, an opportunities to network with, uh, as you mentioned, government leaders and business leaders uh, that may, uh, who knows, what that might lead Definitely. to. Definitely, so, yeah. you know, I, I've uh, there's a couple of folks that I've gotten to know really well from different organizations that. Um, you know, it's just keeping Finley's name in the forefront of mm-hmm. their mind. Sure. Um, so when they're you know looking to open a business or looking to send a client to you know open a, a manufacturing establishment, um, that we have that relationship, and they say, "Oh, you're looking in Ohio. You know, Finley's a great place. I can connect you with the mayor." Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really, you know, building relationships is extremely key in any industry. 
Um, but when you are representing a community that has one, so much to offer and two, so many different avenues of, I guess I'll say evolution from a standpoint of bringing in businesses, you implementing different ideas, learning from other people's mistakes, I think it's really important to engage. And obviously, the city of Finley has a lot to bring to the table uh, in that respect. Uh, you know, talk about the uh, top micropolitan areas <laughs> yeah. and, and so on. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot to brag about uh, yeah, with definitely. respect it's, to that. It's great to get out and tell our story. You know, we're able to talk about, you know, our economic development methods and how we work together as a community. You know, one of the big things that I shared early on kind of in COVID was how we had Hancock Helps set up, you know, that people could get on and find a lot of our resources or our, our No Wrong Doors program, which is mm-hmm. if someone from comes to your organization as a nonprofit, then instead of just saying, oh, no, we don't help with that. Instead, you you take them and you do a mm-hmm. handoff to the other organization. Right. The other thing that, you know, I think is really important, and I know there's been dialogue about it here locally is, you know, it, you know, every everything they put out is, is liberal or, you know, I don't know why you're engaging <laughs> in this, mayors, you know, yeah. yeah, where it doesn't make sense for you to engage as a Republican mayor. Um, but it's, it's the voice of mayors at the federal level and it, it has great relationships with this, you know, federal government. And so if we don't engage, then it's definitely one-sided. Um, and so, you know, over the last couple of days when I was there, there was some policies I saw related to, PFAS regulations, which is those kind of forever chemicals that are being detected in some areas water. Now, mm-hmm. we're fortunate, Finley, we're, we're not detecting any PFAS. However, in some areas, because of a new rule that the federal EPA is looking to implement, it would be extremely costly for um, municipalities to process down to the level that they're expecting, which is four parts per million compared to even in the EU, it's 100 parts per million. Mm. And right now in the U.S., the requirement's 400 parts per million. So we're going from 400 to four. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just going to be unaffordable for communities. Instead of working with the entities that are producing it and potent, the source. Yeah. And, and so I'm like, why are we putting this? Well, it's because governments are easier to, you know, regulate than businesses. But we need to... So I, I was able to be a part of that conversation and, and be a part of that. And then on, on the energy committee, of which I'm a member, mm-hmm. was able to talk about, you know, energy diversity and the importance of investing in our grid. You know, we talk so much about electrification, which I have, you know, opinions on that. But our inf- our grid itself is a national security, um, yeah. you know, vulnerability. Right. And so, um, you know, I was able to advocate to have some language added in and they were like, oh, yeah, we didn't. We didn't think about that. That definitely should be in there. Yeah. Um, so that was good. And those are just the little things, just being a part of conversation. You know, I'm definitely not afraid to share my opinion. I choose when to do it. But being able to be at the table and build relationships and be a different perspective, I think, is really important. Yeah. In the economic development aspect uh, yeah. of this, I do want to <laughs> ask uh, about this. Uh, Project Hat Trick has yes. made some headlines uh, here in uh, the most recent uh, council meeting. Uh, you asked for about $3 million to be allocated for a, a sewer project that would uh, assist Findlay in attract- uh, attracting what uh, apparently we are in the running for a what would be a major economic development project. And I know Correct. that there's not uh, a whole lot that you want to say about that project, but uh, it did seem the council had, I don't want to say some reservations or looked at it cautiously. Uh, yes. What was your thought? Yeah, so uh, my opinion walking out of co- Tuesday night's council meeting mm-hmm. is that council is extremely supportive. Um, you heard from a couple of the council members, how do we show that we are dedicating to do this while also making sure we have some safeguards? And I completely agree with that. Um, And, you know, they talked about making sure, you know, could we provide them a letter of intent? How do we want to do that? So I think they're dedicated to the project. Um, I think rightfully so. We're making sure that we also have those safeguards in place to make sure that if this project doesn't move forward, um, the money is able to come back to, you know, the, the different funds or that we are 
or that we have another conversation around, does it still make sense to invest in that area to attract other businesses? Well, that yeah, that was actually the, the next question that I wanted to ask. If this is, uh, is allocated, this project is done, I mean, how committed would we be if the project doesn't come through for Findlay that this is not just money thrown out the window? Yeah, so it definitely is not going to be money thrown out the window where we would not allow that to happen. Um, we would be able to work through a process to, um, you know, there, there are some safeguards. Just because they appropriate the money doesn't mean it's going to be spent tomorrow. So yeah. I want to be clear on that. Two, um, this is definitely an area of opportunity. And I know we're vague on this still at this point in time. Does council know they more do. than... Okay, so they, they have uh, yeah, all of so, the pertinent so if information. I, if we, can I give a, a thousand foot view for people who are not typically <laughs> involved in this? Let's take one step back. So the way economic development typically works site selectors work with businesses. Businesses will say, hey, site selector, we want to find a property that we can do X, Y, and Z. We want to invest this. We need you know, a service area of this. We mm-hmm. need to be this close to a highway. We need this water and sewer capacity. We need this type of access. And the site selectors go out. That's one of the reasons that Site Selection Magazine is so important is because that is the premier U.S., if not world, site selection magazine that we're keeping our name at the forefront of for these site selectors. Mm -hmm. And it shows that we're easy to work with. So as those site selectors, they start working typically with Jobs Ohio, which is our state economic development, and say, hey, we're looking in Ohio. Can you provide us some spots? Ohio, Finley, all these different communities respond. They start dwindling down that list. Where we're at right now is that we have been notified that we're one of the finalists, so top two or three. And now it's looking at, okay, can we get the project done in the timeline that they're looking for? Mm -hmm. And what incentives or infrastructure needs are needed to meet? Now, when we talked with council um, and I made the pitch and showed them all the information and said, this is what they're needing to be able to move forward with the project. Here's the benefit it's going to provide to us long term. Here's how we can do it. Here's the designs. Here's the cost. Here's the return on investment time frame. When we looked at the return on investment time frame based off of their information in a conservative fashion, the payback without any business income tax with um, being received was six years. And typically, you know, in economics, you're looking at, you know, an ideal to be considered as 10 years. So we're definitely within that window. Ahead of the curve. Yes, we're ahead of the curve, and that's even conservative. And so what they're asking us to do at this point um, is just to help get the infrastructure done. Um, It would be a a road expansion as well as water, sewer, and storm infrastructure. Um, The state of Ohio is also chipping in um, $1.1 million, I believe. And then ODOT is um, contributing, I think, 300000 Almost out of time. But a couple of uh, quick questions. Can can you tell us where that development might be? I cannot be? at this point. Okay. Um, within the, the city limits, within an existing plot or an existing area that you're looking at? I cannot share new? that at this okay. point in time. Uh, and <laughs> Sorry, I would love to. Well, soon, as soon as we can, we will. And the, the name seems to imply, again, can't say what it is, the name seems to imply <laughs> that it also uh, is in some way, shape, or form tied into the high-tech economic uh, development that the state has. So the state makes up really weird names, so I would not read into the name. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, when, when will we know? Uh, what this yeah, is so, and whether Finley uh, is able to secure this Yeah, uh, so ideally in- we'll know in July, um, but depending on any final things that the business may need to work with, we may not be able to make it public right away. Okay, uh, and then is there a any sort of time frame for when this uh, investment, when the construction could start or when this would be yeah. come to fruition? Yeah. Um, so we don't have the definitive timeline, but it would be, um, I would expect that they would be under construction, if not you know, near the end of construction um, in 20, end of 2024. Okay. Big deal. I mean, if this were to be announced, this would be a big, big deal. Yeah, this is definitely significant. We haven't okay. seen an investment like this for a couple of years. It's a great company. It would have above average wages. Um, it would have diverse um, entry points for jobs. Um, so I think it's a really great thing and continues to show that 
we uh, we have a lot to offer and people are recognizing that and we're excited to work with them. And we will leave it there before I ask you anything else. That you can tell <laughs> I know. Sorry. Uh, again, <laughs> again, Philly Mayor Christina Rohn with us uh, this morning. Thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. You're listening to Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Okay, so here is uh, maybe one of the best stories uh, in the broken news that we've had to this point this year. This one, this one is really good. You talk about taking a wrong turn. A 60-year-old driver found himself in a bit of a sticky situation when he accidentally ended up at the Canadian border with a carload full of cannabis and over $600,000 in cash. Oops! <clears throat> Andrew Lee Toppenberg, following incorrect GPS coordinates, ended up at Canada's Rainbow Bridge border crossing uh, at Niagara Falls. Without his passport, he underwent inspection, which led to a shocking discovery. Canadian officials unearthed a whopping 399 pounds of cannabis, neatly packaged in vacuum-sealed containers. Along with bundles and bundles of cash hidden in a safe, a suitcase, a lockable case, and uh, and more, according to this report. <laughs> uh, now that's a wrong turn, right there. That is a wrong turn. Uh, Mr. Toppenberg now faces charges for possession and import of cannabis, as well as I mean, it's bad enough to p- possess. So you try and cross the border with that. Now you're talking about some serious trouble. As well as uh, charges of possessing over $5,000 in proceeds from illegal activities. He appeared in an Ontario court on Monday and remains in custody. (laughs) And all because he followed the wrong instructions from his GPS. (laughs) How many times do we have to tell you? You have to be careful with those uh, GPS instructions. You don't want to just follow them blindly because you could end up like this guy. You know, if you have 400 pounds of marijuana and $600,000 in cash in your car. <laughs> Oops. <clears throat> Elsewhere in the, <laughs> the broken news this morning. Uh, let's see. A jogger in Boulder County, Colorado is recovering after being attacked by a herd of cows. I I know that just sounds weird. It's not what you normally uh, expect. I mean, being attacked by any wild animal is, is bad enough, but a, a herd of cows is a little unusual. Park rangers were called to the Meadowlark Trail near Superior, Colorado yesterday after the woman was seen lying on the ground protecting herself from more than a dozen cows. Officials believe the animals saw the woman as a threat to their calves. The farmer who owns the herd moved them to a fenced pasture away from the trail. The woman was taken to the hospital. Uh, She is expected to recover. So, Wow. Explain that to your insurance company. What is... Honestly, I was attacked by a herd of cows unusual uh speaking of uh, animals and the broken news i guess um well, a big rig carrying a trailer full of chickens overturned earlier this week in fresno county california california highway patrol saying a number of crates fell out of the trailer landed on the road which leads to all sorts of why did the chickens cross the road jokes I guess. the driver of the truck uh had some minor pains but uh was treated uh, and at the scene and released. <clears throat> okay. Uh, let's see. Woman in College Station, Texas is facing charges for allegedly. Now, how does this happen? Uh, allegedly, she forced her roommate into prostitution. That's the story. How does this happen? You might ask. How did you force your roommate into prostitution? Well, police say the man, Bonner, made her roommate have relations with numerous customers in order to pay her rent. She couldn't pay her rent? She said, well, I have an idea. Yeah. 
Ms. Bonner told investigators the roommate had to pay the bills to live there. So, there you go. She was arrested after officers executed a search warrant at the residence. That's crazy. <clears throat> a substitute teacher in Mesquite, Texas, uh, is uh, facing charges of endangering children after she is accused of encouraging students to fight in the classroom. Uh, authorities say 24-year-old Natalie Garcia made space for fights in her class at Kimbrough Middle School and even set the rules. <laughs> this is a substitute teacher. Okay, we're going to do something a little different today with your regular teacher gone. Uh, she was allegedly caught on video telling a student to watch the door while the fights took place. Yeah, that's not good. Hmm. And fi- finally, in the broken news this morning, <laughs> this from the International File, in Australia, a drunken surfer has been jailed for getting naked and violently attacking people in what should have been a peaceful vacation. The 23-year-old was taken into custody um, after agreeing to, uh, apparently he will be uh, headed back to his homeland after agreeing to apologize uh, for his outlandish behavior and provide compensation to the people who were hurt during his rampage. Um, getting naked and violently attacking people on the beach. Uh, the man was able to uh, leave uh, jail this week. It is estimated he had to pay a little over $16,000 for his wild night of debauchery and violence. Well, you know, you go on vacation to cut loose. Naked, uh, getting naked and violently attacking people on the beach. <clears throat> All right. So what did you do on vacation? Well, kind of a funny story. Weird stuff all the way around. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Did you know more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for their news, traffic, weather, sports, and a community connection? AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping Americans safe in dangerous times. This is News Director Matt Demchek. AM 1330 WFIN is here to serve you, and we take seriously our commitment to our listeners. We would love to hear what you value most about AM radio. Visit wearebroadcasters.com and tell us how you depend on AM. We'll finish up today with our Throwback Thursday segment this morning with Father's Day coming up. I think most people would agree, it's not any bold, groundbreaking idea, that it is as important for fathers to develop strong bonds with their children as it is for mothers, right? But did you also know that just as a small but significant number of moms have difficulty with that bonding process, the same is true for dads. In other words, fathers can get postpartum depression too. Sort of. In the run-up to Father's Day back in 2017, we spoke with Lynn Erdman, registered nurse and then CEO of the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses about this phenomenon, where it comes from, and how to overcome it. Now, this isn't exactly the same thing, right? I mean, uh, postpartum depression is uh, in women is often due to hormonal and chemical imbalances associated with pregnancy and childbirth, and obviously that does not apply to men. Correct, but the depression can occur in men uh, as it does in women, and occasionally men actually need treatment for it. But most of the time it has to do with the relationship and the bonding with their new baby. What then leads dads to, to feel this uh, uh, delay or this um, absence of a bond with a newborn? Oftentimes what happens with the mom is as soon as the mother is pregnant, she starts bonding with that baby. You know, the baby's growing inside her, she can feel changes, and right. the bonding begins immediately. Often with the dad, the bonding doesn't begin until after the birth has occurred. And so you think about that, that's a delay in time right there. 
But as the child is born, then the father has to create that bonding and that experience that the mother's been working on for the past nine months. And so that's where some of the delay comes from. Now, again, it's not a a real uh, big, bold, dramatic statement to say that uh, daddy-baby bonding would be important for baby. I mean, I think most people would kind of inherently recognize that. It's a good thing for baby. Let's turn it around a little bit. What effect does a delayed bonding process between a child and its father, what effect does that have on the dad? Uh, sure. Well, it can cause kind of a separation with the dad and the baby, and delayed bonding over the course, really, of the first couple of months can increase not only the risk for the postpartum depression in dads, but also the bonding opportunity for a lifetime uh, with that infant as they grow up. And so it's important to start that bonding early. So what do you say to dads uh, about, uh, particularly new fathers, uh, to to help reduce that risk of this delayed bonding and and how to improve that bond if baby is already here. Sure, I think the most important thing is just jump right in. You know, even if it's been a few weeks and the baby is is born and you think, man, I haven't done much. I don't feel as attached to this baby as I see my wife being. Then you know, don't be afraid. Just start loving on the baby and hold the baby and you know, spend time with the baby until you, as a dad, get to feel a little more comfortable. And even take a night shift. Uh, you know, oftentimes the mom is breastfeeding, and so the mom is the one getting up in the middle of the night. Sure. But if you see the mom's just exhausted, then you know she's probably pumped her <laughs> breast. So give the baby some breast milk overnight and let her sleep, and that's a great bonding time. Or you know, give the baby the bath, and and again, wonderful time for nurturing and bonding, and even creating a bedtime ritual. You know, we always want to get children in a bedtime routine. It's worthwhile starting early. Uh, I, I had to uh, chuckle a little bit is when you said, if you see mom is exhausted. You know, like, like, like that's an if. That's You're probably going to notice that, right? That, that's, that's pretty much a certainty. Mom's going to be exhausted at one point or another. So dad uh, has the opportunity to, to jump right in. With respect to that, though, I, I guess we, we should probably uh, talk about you know, moms can actually help play a role in, in improving that uh, daddy-baby bond as well. Yes, moms really do play a role in improving that bond because the mom often can take charge of what's happening with the newborn, that type of thing, and so can encourage or just pass the child, you know, to the dad and say, hey, you're really doing a great job here. Uh, You know, look at the difference you've made in the past week. Look how comfortable you look holding that child and, you know, really help them gain the confidence as a dad and especially as a new dad and that helps with the bonding experience too you know we're talking about uh couples uh here primarily who you know are are starting a family and or maybe expanding a family and talking about the dynamic when all parties are uh, part of the the same family unit under the under the same household how much of a monkey wrench does it throw in because you know we certainly see this more and more today where dad is not necessarily uh you know always within within the home i mean you don't have Correct. necessarily the traditional family unit Yes, there are many of there are many non-traditional family situations, and where you've got partners that are raising the child, and maybe you even adopted a child, and sure. so both of you are getting accustomed mm-hmm. at that point in time with the child at the same time. So the nurturing or that bonding experience of carrying the baby may not have occurred for either one of you, and so uh, still though the bonding needs to occur equally between the partners or the people that are raising the child. It's extremely important. It could be a single-parent family. And, again, the bonding is important for the child's development, the infant's development, as well as for the nurturing and development of the adult, too. And that really goes back to where we started, the fact that uh, bonding between fathers and their children is certainly very important for the well-being of all parties. Yes, uh, we've done a number of studies, and even the Journal of the American Medical Association 
has reviewed recently 43 studies on depression in fathers, which I, I think is interesting. And you could take that into, you know, anybody with a new child. But, you know, they found that postpartum depression was evident in men or in fathers in the first three months in about 10% of new dads, but in about 25% of new dads between three and six months after birth, hmm. which is interesting, meaning it increases at the time that you think, oh, it might be decreasing. You may be getting used to things by, yeah. by then, but we, we see instead of an increase, probably due to the fact that you've got excitement at the beginning when the sure. you know baby first arrives and you know, you're kind of running and on adrenaline and right. then all everything sinks in <laughs> uh, with life change and diapers into... and midnight feedings and everything else. <laughs> Settling into the reality uh, of the situation. <laughs> And and we do know that uh, again, this is beneficial to the child too. I mean, the the child gets yes. it's not just all about dad. Correct. It really helps with the developmental growth of the child as well. So an interpersonal relationship, all of those types of things. So development developmentally, it's important for the infant as well. Again, Lynn Erdman is the CEO of the Association of Women's Health, Obstetric, and Neonatal Nurses, and you have uh, more uh, information. Uh, not just for new moms, but for do, new dads uh, online as well, right? Absolutely. Go to our website at a one a w h o n n dot org or Healthy Mom and Baby, either place, and you can find information that you can download and use. Lynn, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Again, uh, interesting uh, talking with the then CEO of the Association of Women's Health, Obstetric, and Neonatal Nurses about Father's Day and the difficulties that fathers sometimes have with bonding with their uh, new children. Lynn Erdman, our throwback Thursday this morning from Father's Day of 2017, the big day for dad coming up here in uh, just a, a week or so. We've got that link up at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. Today's Throwback Thursday. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. Check us out online at goodmornings.net. Also connect with us on social media. Sign up for our daily email newsletter. Shoot us an email if there's something you want to share directly with us. It's all right there. Again, goodmornings.net is our little corner of the World Wide Web. Till tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.